MSW Media. So, Asha, does Jack Smith's move to seek immediate Supreme Court review of Judge Chutkin's decision mean that he's going to be on track to have a trial in March? Eh, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And I'm Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, Renato, last week we talked about Judge Chutkin's ruling in Trump's motion to have his January 6th case dismissed based on his claim that he has absolute immunity uh, because his actions are covered by his presidential uh, authority, basically. And we discussed all the reasons that Judge Chutkin threw that claim out the window. And it looks like Jack Smith has now gone directly to the Supreme Court, sort of leapfrogging the Court of Appeals. Um, This is called a certification, um, or sorry, a certiorari before judgment, um, asking them to basically directly review her ruling. So, yes. And in fact, I mean, I guess what I would say as a starting point is that this is actually, I'd say, an implicit concession by Jack Smith. He's conceding that if he just let everything play out the way it ordinarily would, that Trump could use this to push this past the election. I I think he made a calculus that there was a very good probability that Trump, if he just let this play out, Uh, would end up delaying the election. And I'll just note for everybody that's listening, this is an unusual situation. You know, when my clients get indicted and I file motions to dismiss that are inevitably not granted, uh, they rarely, those rarely succeed in a criminal case. My clients don't get like their trials delayed while we like figure out some appellate process. This is an unusual situation where Trump has raised claims that have never been raised before because he's the first president who was indicted, first impeached president indicted, all of these things. He's a first, he's a first over a first many, many times over. But he's, he's also got this election looming and the government's in a hurry to get things, to get things resolved here because Jack Smith is worried, I think, that Trump would essentially take his time, ask Chutkin if he could appeal, try to go to the D.C. Circuit, Take time there, have this go up to the Supreme Court. And by that time, you know, certainly the March trial date wouldn't occur, but you might even be in a situation where it could get pushed past the election. Yes. So he's trying to basically bypass, um, like take the, if we're on a clue playing board, he wants to take the direct, um, you know, shortcut through the conservatory (laughs) or whatever. And, (laughs) um, so, you know, what I think is really interesting, so Steve Vladek, who is kind of the Supreme Court guru, um, I've had him speak to my Substack class, his last book, Shadow Docket, is really good because it talks about some of these unusual procedural moves and 
how common or uncommon they are. And he's kind of looking at it historically to make the case that the Supreme Court over the last decade or so has been making kind of decisions using procedural shenanigans um, that have implications. But basically, in in light of that, one of the things that he noted was that um, historically, I'm quoting from him, this is, a, I think, a tweet that he wrote, um, historically, it was unusual for SCOTUS to grant certiorari before judgment, i.e. leapfrogging courts of appeals. But not only is this the kind of case in which the court would take such a step, it's also granted such review far more often since 2019. And he made this very useful chart um, with the help of his research assistant. I'm looking at it right now, um, where he lists the 49 instances historically where the Supreme Court has granted certiorari before judgment. And what he notes is that many of those cases involve issues surrounding presidential power. So in other words, this should be the kind of case that would merit leapfrogging the Court of Appeals and going directly to the Supreme Court. And importantly, in this context, one of those cases was Nixon versus United States. And that was put on an expedited schedule. Um, and I think that that hopefully, and I think Jack Smith has actually asked for the same exact kind of schedule that they followed in um, Nixon versus U.S. Uh, to get to get that ruling very quickly. I, I think really emphasizing the importance of, you know, holding a former president, or I guess at that time, a current president accountable. Yeah, I think this is definitely, I agree with you, Asha, this is definitely the sort of case that should be heard by the Supreme Court because, you know, one reason why the Supreme Court might not hear a case right away is because they may not need to because it could ultimately get resolved by the Court of Appeals. Here, there's no precedent, really, for a Court of Appeals to look at. It's not like they're interpreting prior Supreme Court decisions. Like These are completely novel questions, never been raised before. No one's ever looked at these issues before. Of course, the Supreme Court's ultimately going to decide this. And I'm just not sure there's much benefit uh, to anyone to have the Court of Appeals do this first. Now, I'll just throw out there that that, you know, that is a possibility. Um, it is possible the Supreme Court ultimately decides, no, we want to hear from the D.C. Circuit first. We want them to look at this. We want to be able to review their opinion. But ultimately, they're the they're going to be the ones that the Supreme Court's going to be the ones deciding this, and it's really in everyone's interest to get a clear answer quickly, um, so we know before the election and before people are casting votes, because you know it's not that long until the Iowa caucuses, and so really, yeah. I mean, it, it does matter if he's not going to be immune here, if he's not going to have the Supreme Court. Uh, giving him uh, a free pass, I think the Republican primary voters at the very least should know that. Yeah, and I think another reason that it doesn't make sense for this to, you know, percolate, I guess, is that one of the reasons that the Supreme Court waits is to allow legal issues to have time to make their way up multiple jurisdictions, mm -hmm. right? Because usually it's a legal issue that applies to everybody and they they want to benefit from 
the different approaches and legal reasoning that different courts might have. So by the time it gets up to the Supreme Court, they kind of have a lot of different pathways and 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 things to evaluate and kind of learn from and draw from. This is not a situation that's going to apply to everybody, <laughs> that you need those um, courts as sort of laboratories to experiment with different ways of solving this legal question. This applies to one person um, who occupies that office. It's going to have ramifications for anyone else who holds that office. And as you noted, it's a pretty you know, direct constitutional question that is going to make its way up there anyway. Yeah, absolutely. This is, you know, ultimately they're deciding things like does impeachment, we talked about this last week, right? Is impeachment uh, count for double jeopardy purposes? And it's like, that's never going to come up again, hopefully in American history, maybe, you know, not for hundreds of years, hopefully ever again. Um, And it's now, you know, no one, nothing else is going to percolate up to them. And the sooner we figure this out, the better. I will say it's an inter- it is an unusual move for a prosecutor. I give Jack Smith credit for being nimble. You know, he has really been uh, somebody who's been very aggressive, very much outside the box. You know, prosecutors typically are not in any hurry to get from point A to point B uh, in something like this. Certainly not to give the defendant um, appellate arguments. I mean, typically the goal is to. Um, you know, you know, you'd make the argument if you're the prosecutor, hey, we don't need an appeal now. Let's just try this case. Um, and I think there's an element to which he's he he's conceding the reality of the underlying reality of the situation. Trump is the former president and, you know, he's going to have a very strong argument to, to have this on appeal. And I, I think he did, he did make that judgment call I mentioned earlier. I also think that this is, frankly, it's actually fairer for Trump to have this figured out now. Um, it's it's ironically the only metric by which it's not fair is potential delay, and I just uh, that's the sort of thing that they can't put in writing. So it's going to be interesting to see Asha because really where we're at right now is Trump. The, the Supreme Court has asked Trump's team to respond to this request and explain what their view is, and I just I don't know what um, grounds they're going to have to say that we should delay this. And it's going to be very challenging to to see what for them to to lay that out and explain it. Yeah, especially since I think on the merits there are, you know, this the United States versus Nixon situation is analogous, and they did do it. They did grant expedited review, so they would be kind of turning away from their own historical practice in a similar context. I just want to add as a side note. We talked last week about policy concerns, right? And I wrote a piece for Politico many years ago during the Russia investigation when there was the possibility that there were constitutional issues that would go, you know, up if, for example, Mueller issued a subpoena to Trump or something like that. And I wrote about how it's a bad situation, not that this shouldn't happen in this case, but you don't want big presidential power cases and questions involving the pre- a person trying to shield their own bad personal conduct being like th- those are not the ideal cases that you want uh determining the limits of presidential power mm-hmm. right like because that doesn't 
you know, when, when you have a case that goes up that's testing the boundaries of presidential power in an area of policy, right, foreign policy, war powers, things like that, I think that that can be helpful because it's actually enhancing checks and balances and, you know, our constitutional principles and, and kind of democracy and the power of government as a whole. When you have cases like this or Nixon, you know, you're really looking at presidential power in a, to- in a context in which ideally you would not be applying it. And right. I just, I just want to highlight that. I think it's, it's sad that we are now at a place where the Supreme Court is going to determine whether a president constitutionally has immunity from being prosecuted for trying to overthrow an election. I mean, I don't know. Like that to me, I think is just kind of a depressing state of affairs. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think, look, the Trump presidency is such a depressing state of affairs. And the fact that we are dealing with all of these absurd questions, I mean, it's actually a bad thing for the country that so many people care about and have to hang on the words of lawyers trying to understand, like, how could this be and how could this be legal and, you know, what what can we do? I mean, what an awful state of affairs just more generally. Um, but, but. Um, you know, regarding the, um, you know, regarding the Supreme Court, I mean, I think when I think about this, Ash, it's, uh, you know, one thing I've been contemplating is what is the Supreme Court really going to do here? And I guess I really believe that ultimately, you know, we talked a little bit about this last week. Um, you know, I think he's, the, the majority is not, is going to reject these arguments. And I think you're going to have five or six votes at least to reject these arguments. But, you know, I'm not so sure about the process thing. If Trump has some reason why he thinks the D.C. Circuit should take a look at this first or something along those lines, I, I you know, that I think isn't, I think the Supreme Court should just take this up now. But I wonder if that's an easier thing for a, a Chief Justice Roberts to say, well, you know, let, let's just, let's go through the ordinary process and treat him the way we would treat this, you know, treat a typical case. I think there's a question, there's a few different questions that we're going to have to see how this unfolds. Number one, whether they accept the case, right? Whether they agree to to hear it and whether they're going to do it on, you know, a schedule that uh, is expedited so that as per Jack Smith's request, it can stay on the same schedule or if it's going to like get pushed out into the spring sometime. And I think the third thing is, are they actually going to hear the case and decide it on the merits? Because one of the things that Steve Vladek points out in his book and in this chart, actually, is that in many cases where they have granted cert before judgment in recent years, what the court has done is grant cert, vacate the lower court's decision, and remand it with like literally no guidance. Now, they've done that in the cases of like COVID and religious liberty cases and things like that. I find it hard to think of how they would do it in this situation, like how they wouldn't answer it on the merits. But that's kind of what he's been calling the shadow docket, where they just kind of um, say, nope, you got it wrong. Go back and try again. And then, you know, a court is just like left hanging out there. So, you know, Will they accept the case? 
Will they do it on a schedule that allows for the case to unfold in a timely manner? And are they going to really answer the question directly with a reasoned opinion? I think number three is very likely. Like I said, I can't imagine how they could not address this with a reasoned opinion. I think the whether they will do so in a timely manner is is really the question. I suppose you could imagine a circumstance in which they allow the D.C. Circuit to take the first look at this and then decide that the D.C. Circuit opinion is sufficient and then they're not going to weigh in. Um, perhaps if the chief justice realizes this is an issue that's going to divide the court and he doesn't want us to have a divided court on the issue. But it's not up to him. It, it doesn't it. It would only require four people to grant cert. Right. Well, that's right. I, I the reason I'm mentioning him is I kind of view him as somebody who influences a swing set of votes. Right. Yeah. OK. We know there's three votes on one side and we know there's God knows how many votes on the other. And I think um, the, the only way in which there's any sort of sway there mm-hmm. is him sort of potentially having influence over Kavanaugh or something along those lines. Right. So. Um, but yeah, you're right. Four votes. I mean, you know, ultimately Alito Thomas. Um, and it's a travesty that Thomas would even participate in this case at all. Sorry, I have to. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The the Supreme Court. I mean, <laughs> Supreme Court recusal. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, that whenever you're talking about judges, you know, they decide in the first instance whether they're going to recuse. Like this. I'll just say this is a litigator. Like I never, I never pin a lot of my clients' hopes on a judge deciding to recuse in the case. Like this is just the reality. Um, but in the Supreme Court, even more so. Well, let's just. But in in this case, I just want to highlight that it is. I mean, his wife was an active participant and in communication with the White House in the activities that are literally the subject of these charges. Yeah, it certainly creates significant appearance issues for the court. It's stupid. Yeah. We are in stupid well, I times. Will, well, I will, well, I will just say that, um, I, I mean, I'm just saying that's a hypothetical. You know, Realistically, though, I would just think the Supreme Court's going to want to decide this. They're, of yeah. course, going to want to get the word. This is like a historic moment in, in our country. And yeah. this is why you're on the Supreme Court, is to make these decisions. So I, I can't imagine them not deciding it. And I'm very optimistic about how this how this is going to get resolved, uh, and that's a I think that's a good thing. And if 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 listeners are looking for kind of a bright spot spot here, I think getting to that endpoint is probably um, uh, you know faster is probably a good thing for everyone concerned. And so I actually think overall it's a very positive development. Yeah, and I hope so because this really this issue, if they were to reject Trump's claims, would at least at the very least reinforce the very, very basic principle that the president is not above the law. Yeah, 100%. So, uh, doing our little, you know, uh, United States map and going from one case to another, I, I feel like we need that dotted line, like where a plane flies to New York. Um, Back in another courtroom, uh, in Trump's civil case, um, Trump did not testify um, as he claimed that he would do, I think, late last week. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, You know, Trump made a big point of it. I actually, Alina Haba 
came out and said, you know, only cowards don't testify. This was a few days, of, you know, a few days beforehand, right? And only cowards <laughs> hide off, you know, they don't take the stand, which of course, by the way, is not true. Um, I, but um, I, I think it's actually, it's interesting to me. It, it tells me a couple of things. I mean, one thing is it's, yeah, it's a very wise choice legally. Let's just talk about this from a legal perspective first, okay? Because yeah. that's this is what's going on is extra legal, okay? It's it's Trump, but you know if you're looking at it from a pure legal perspective, they're losing this trial. They've been losing this. They, they've basically lost this trial years ago or months, many many months ago, when they made the decision to take the fifth hundreds and hundreds of times in the course of their depositions, and that was it. Like they basically put themselves in a position where. Um, the judge is going to take adverse inference from that. Like, how how do you in a fraud case, if you're taking the fifth when they're asking you all these questions about whether you committed fraud, how do you expect in a civil case where that could be used against you? How do you expect uh, to win the case? Like, I just think it's, this case was dead to water from the beginning. They were dead in the water from the beginning. So, given that you knew going into this trial you're going to lose, the judge already decided that you committed fraud. There's just a there's just a number of counts that are still out there, and and obviously the extent of the remedy. Um, this is a case where a lot of lawyers would have just reached a resolution with the AG on the front end and not even f- had a trial. This, to me, the whole trial's a show. And it's a, it's a way to distract us. It's a way to just set up a narrative. It's a way to try to attack the court system. And so I think, so really, to me, Trump's testimony was going to be a tool for him to speak out and say whatever and try to further his disinformation agenda. And I think they, they re, re, you know, they drew up a calculus there and they're like, you know what? This, this is not a televised court proceeding. People aren't going to hear this stuff anyway. He can go out in truth or whatever, whatever he wants afterwards, one way or the other. And everything he says under oath is going to be used against him elsewhere. And, and certainly in that case, because the guy is a complete train wreck when he tries to testify. That's what I think happened. Yeah. And I think also because there are consequences, not just in terms of his legal liability, but because he can't control himself. And if he gets up there and I guess he's going to be feet away from that judge's law clerk who he hates for reasons that are still not clear to me, um, you never know what he's going to say, what insults he's going to hurl. Um you know, at the judge, at the judge's clerk, and he's already, uh, he's under a gag order that has been reinstated, um, you know, and and has been sanctioned twice already under it. So I'm sure they also have that worry um, as well. And, you know, it's interesting because this week I wrote a Substack piece about all, all these things that you mentioned just now, like his disinformation tactics and use kind of trying to troll all of, you know, these different institutions, the press, you know, the FBI, it, he hits a limit in the judicial system because there's actual rules there. So like his kind of version of hybrid warfare doesn't fly as I think what you're going to, is what you're getting at. There are actual consequences in a way that he hasn't faced in other contexts until now. And so he has to, I think his lawyers need understand that they need to rate him in. That's really interesting, Asha. You know, that's one thing I'll just say for our, our listeners' benefit here. I mean, that's something that Asha, I think is, that's a real strength of yours is understanding this disinformation element. And that's, I know you explore that a lot in your sub stack. Um, 
But, you know, I, I think, yeah, to me, I agree with what you said. And I think that part of what this also reveals is that at his core, Trump is rational. This is a strategy. It's not purely like there's this element where he's it's hard to tell a state of mind. And I think he plays into that. Like, is he crazy? Is he out of control? You know, that's part of that. That gives him an advantage of kind of throwing people off. And I think he likes sort of having this mystery about what his state of mind really is. But at the end of the day, despite clearly having these lawyers in a very weird spot, I mean, he, he's got these lawyers coming out saying, you know, this is the greatest testimony ever and he's the greatest ever and all this BS that these lawyers are saying, at the end of the day, they were able to talk him off a cliff in a conference room, wherever they were having this conversation and say, hey, look, it, whatever you say here, Fonnie Willis is going to be looking through this transcript. Whatever you say here, you know, Alvin Bragg is going to be looking through this transcript. Um, you know, there are going to be prosecutors out there who are going to look at this and are going to be looking for, you know, ways in which this enhances other cases they may have. So why are we doing this? Like, what are we actually achieving here? And it just shows he does listen to reason when there are, as you point out, rules and consequences. Um, yeah. for violating those rules. Yeah. Um, a couple of points just on the how he lost the case already. I just wanted to remind our listeners that he's basically already admitted that he was the last, like the buck stopped with him um, in terms of all the decisions. Like it's it, it's really hard to see what he's going to say to come down from that. Um, the other thing I would just push back on this idea that he's 100% rational in this case. I really do. I've said this before. I think this case gets to the heart of his identity and image. And I think that there is a part of, I mean, just the fact that he's physically in court for this, you know, that like, I think that, that getting to his wealth and, you know, his uh, image as this billionaire, as, you know, someone who's highly successful um, and the fact that it could be taken away, I think really gets to the core of who he is. And to just connect this with our earlier topic, I feel like in some ways we underestimate the impact that this case will have on his state of mind going into the 2024 election. If he's hit with a huge, you know, damages like that he has to you know um disgorge himself of all these profits if he has to lose all this money then man i'm telling you he's gonna go if he wins the election again not only is he gonna go in fully looking at the u.s treasury as his personal piggy bank but you can bet that everything during a second trump term will be purely transactional and in terms of like, I think that's going to drive a lot of how he sees the presidency. If he loses a lot of money here, he's going to be looking to make it back in some way. That's my take. Wow. That's interesting. I mean, I think a second Trump term in the specter of that warrants its own um, its own segment. I mean, we I think we may have talked about this at some point in the podcast, but I mean, the, just the, the reports coming out of what his government would look like, who would be appointed to the cabinet, what he's planning to do is really something. Because he's he's really, I think, figured out 
what what the limits are, how to get around obstacles, and it's got a whole group of loyalists ready to go. So it, it boggles the mind what a second Trump term could look like if he does, in fact, win. And and by the way, it's something we have to take seriously. You know, there's a lot of people um, who are just like, oh, that'll never happen. And it's like, this guy's leading in the polls. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a serious concern. Yep. And he's already said that he'll be a dictator from day one. It is a very, you know, dark time for our country. So um, that was kind of a depressing note. And I feel like it's kind of of a piece with not great news all around. Renato, before we go, do you want to talk a little bit about what's been going on? Yeah, you know, I um, I'll tell you, it's been a, I, it's been a rough year for me in general. I've been working, you know, my law practice has exploded. I've been working a lot of hours. It's been a lot of stress, and um, you know, so some stress related illnesses. One of them being shingles, just uh, uh, has been something I've been dealing with the last couple of weeks. And boy, is that painful. You know, I did not realize um, that shingles was something I had to worry about. The vaccine, something you get a lot older. And um, at a different age. And uh, uh, wow, um, it's incredibly painful. I have to confess, I don't know exactly what shingles is. Well, uh, so for those of us who are old enough to have not, who have, to have gotten chicken pox, our younger mm-hmm. listeners are like, what? Isn't everyone vaccinated for that? Uh, no, uh, people at our age group uh, all got it. Um, we can have that virus uh, come back later and it actually inflames your nerve. So you end up having very intense throbbing pain and it can appear anywhere. And you'll, you'll also have sort of things that sort of appear and what we call vesicles or something. So it, 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 it can be all any part of your body. So sometimes people have it on their face. Sometimes people have it in their arm or in their chest. Um, I had it on, on my ear as a very specific uh, nerve in my in, kind of in the side of my head, so it's like a, it's something called Ramsey Hunt so, a syndrome. So it's it it it's it's not a, a something that's a permanent problem or something. But it it I had that and I had an associated infection. So if I uh, last week seemed like I was not as sharp as usual um, or catch, catching my words because I was on a lot of medicine, I'm still on a lot of medicine, um, and I've been like really trying to get to a point where I can go on our trip because we had planned a vacation uh, to leave uh, this week, uh, which is really my first and only vacation this year. So my wife and I are really hoping we can make that happen. So hopefully you won't see me in the next podcast uh, that we have. And that'll be a that'll be a good thing. That'll be a sign that I'm relaxing. Yeah, I'm so sorry. And is this exacerbated by the stress like what triggers it yeah it 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 can be and that's you know that's it's one thing that um it's a struggle work-life balance right um you know that's a hard thing as a lawyer you know you have my practice has grown i've got a lot of clients and stuff and it's a good thing but you know working thousands and thousands and thousands of hours um it just it it can be a lot and, it, you know, for me this year, it's basically been every waking moment has been work. Um, and so if you see me less on Twitter or with Zitter or whatever the heck that is, or on threads, um, or you see me less, you know, in general um, on television or something, that's what, that's part of the reason why. But, you know, I think that our, I think that's, a, it's a real sign that our inner 
body. You know, we've talked about mindfulness before, Asha, kind of our mm-hmm. inner body and our our physical self is are are connected, right? And there's a real connection between those two. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good reminder for all of us to engage in self-care and to use the holidays to try to get rested and rejuvenated. Because I think as we talked about in both of the blocks earlier, you know, 2024 is going to be a very challenging year in a lot of ways for everyone, mental health wise, I think. Um, And, you know, we kind of have to, we have to take care of ourselves so that we're ready for the fight. And I, I really hope that you feel better very, very soon. Thank you, Asha. M-S-W Media.